Hi there, I'm Evan Troxell. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Bill Allen, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have you here. It's good to see you again. Good to see you, Evan. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And so, Bill, you are, you're in Colorado. Yeah. You're up in Boulder. Yes, sir. Boulder, Colorado. And how's Boulder right now? Boulder is beautiful. Just made a trip up to Estes Park last weekend with the family. Nice. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really pretty here right now. I love that part of the country. I, we did, I think I told you before, we did a road trip up there from Southern California. And we also drove all, you know, up through Estes Park and Rocky Mountain National Park and did some fly fishing and kind of just got all all googly eyed over the rock climbing up there in El Dorado Canyon and stuff. We didn't we didn't do much because my my kids were totally into fishing at the time, and so every morning at like six a.m. I'm driving them. We stayed in Superior, I think, so just outside of town, right? And we went into Boulder Creek every morning. Got to get out there and catch some little tiny trout. <laughs> That's awesome. That's it was perfect. super fun. Yeah. It was did you guys do an Airbnb or yeah? Okay. Yeah, we did Airbnb, and and it was uh, yeah. I mean, it was perfect. We we had this place. We could cook there. We could get to anywhere. You know, you're thirty minutes away from Denver. You're thirty minutes away from Boulder. I mean, like it's just fantastic. There's so many trails to, to hike and places to fish, and you know all the good stuff. So for sure, yeah, it was yeah, cool. So I love that area. So um, I think the last time we saw each other in person was at AU, right? I think so. Yeah. Uh, was it last year? 2019? Yeah, I think AU? it was last year. Yeah. So no AU this year, right? It's That's gonna, right. At least not in person. It's all, uh, person. yeah, it's all virtual this year. Yeah. And, and I think that's kind of, maybe we just start there is, um, everything's virtual right now. Right. And so what do you think? I mean, to me, at least in the position that I'm in, the real benefit to going to a place like that is is the meet and greet, the face to face, the networking and the recruiting that happens, you know, as doing digital practice at HMC for me and for you, I could imagine it's probably a huge time for you to connect face to face with your customers. Yeah, for sure. I think like for us, not a whole lot, lot changed just because we do work with different people throughout the US and in the world. And mm-hmm. so like, virtual meetings tend to be just more efficient than like flying somewhere and meeting someone. So client wise, we've already kind of been doing that. But like for our team, we have people in Chicago, uh, Utah, and Minnesota, as well as Colorado. And um, I I do miss like the face to face and kind of the the water, like we had a foosball table in the office. And that was kind of nice, like just to get a get a beer and and hang out with uh, team members in that capacity. But yeah, it's it's different now having it 100% full-time. One of the things that we're doing at the office is, I don't know if you've heard of uh, jackbox.tv, like no. it's a way to play games online. Okay. And so we're doing that every Thursday as like a, kind of like a happy hour, camaraderie, get together with the team, et cetera, just in the absence of being able to meet in person. And then just plus also having team members in different locations, it helps those yeah. people feel closer to the majority of us so <laughs> to, to to the <laughs> hq yeah that's now, right <laughs> now the hq is like online it's 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 an odd thing so tell me about like what that's been like for you guys it sounds to me like you you've always had at least some percentage of your people are remote but overall like you're now, now you're all pretty much remote so has that changed much for you guys day to day a little bit not a ton um we're leveraging microsoft teams a lot more now and zoom calls but we never had a physical server physical uh, drive. So 
everything for us is hosted on Microsoft OneDrive, mm-hmm. um, and we just coordinate via that. So it's kind of nice. We, we 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 didn't have a lot of disruption, if you will, yeah. when everyone went home. So awesome. So yeah. two things I wanted to talk to you about today, or at least I thought we could talk about. We'll see where this goes. One of them was you had a blog post on your Evolve Lab site that was a response to another blog post. And so the original blog post by Daniel Davis, Dr. Daniel Davis, was uh, generative design is doomed to fail. Obviously, there's tons of respect uh, from all sides here. I think that, you know, there's lots of different perspectives and there's lots of nuance to this as well. And it probably begins with what we call things (laughs) to begin with, right? (laughs) There's so sure. there's, there's buzzwords that people interpret in different ways, and there's there's algorithmic design versus generative design, and there's you know words aren't necessarily super carefully chosen when it comes to this stuff, and so it's just like you know you know what I'm talking about kind of a thing. But I think there's a lot more nuance to it than that. So maybe could you take us through kind of what that original blog post was about, and then what was your response to it? Yeah, for sure. So first off, the highest, utmost respect for Daniel Davis. I've had the opportunity to sit alongside shoulders with Daniel at various conferences, including in Atlanta, Georgia, um, at different design conventions, etc. And so just as a preface, I have like the utmost respect for Daniel. And um, I would also add, I think, you know, sometimes people in our industry, and, and I, I tried to do it carefully, but if you want to rebut, like I, I tried to do it very, very tactfully and respectfully. So I wanted to to preface that, that I do very much respect Daniel and all of his work. I think he's definitely a pioneer in our industry. And so I, I want to just preface that. Yeah. I was very intrigued by first, the headline was generative design is doomed to fail. Yeah. And so it, it took the assertive that it is a, a, an affirmative, if you will. And so what I did is uh, I wanted to ask the question. And so my, my post or, or rebuttal was, is generative design doomed to fail? Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, okay. So, so what's there's there's a, a name for this law out there, and I can't think of the name off the top of my head, but this is pretty well known. I mean, it's on Wikipedia, so it's got to be true. There's, uh, <laughs> there's, there's, it's somebody's law, and and the law is if the headline is a question, the answer is no. <laughs> That's the law. So you you have to know that whenever you ask a question in the headline of whatever the thing it is that you're writing, uh, the answer is typically no. No, that's good. That's good to know. It's yeah. good. From if only I knew the name of it, that would that would help a lot. But I, maybe I'll find it in time for the show notes. We'll see. Yeah, that'd be great. What one of the things? It, sometimes, to my demise, I can be a little too optimist, but I always see things as an opportunity, even like problems in our industry or pro- problems in the world. And so, as an opportunity to say, okay, uh, what are some of the problems of generative design um, that Daniel had pointed out, and mm-hmm. it, it, are there solutions to some of these? You know, like. Some of the, some of the logic and, and rationale he, he brought up is you know uh, designers don't work like this. There is different reasons why why it wouldn't work. Specifically, the the algorithm you know the way Autodesk is pushing it versus like other companies. You know there, there's also a difference between that. I think there was a, a comment in the way Autodesk is pitching generative design, and the other one of the other ones that was very valid was that you have to create your own algorithm. So like. Similar to like Revit, right? If you wanted to uh, start drawing a building in Revit, you grab the wall tool, the window tool, the door tool. Well, to Daniel's point, there isn't like just this off-the-shelf tool that you grab and you execute generative design yet. Right. Um, <laughs> and so uh, my my comment back was like, yes, that's true, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't execute it. 
And then also uh, a big overarching point that he had was, and I tried to clarify a little bit, uh, was that you you couldn't, just because you have more options doesn't mean that those are the best options or, or that you would just throw generative design at your building. And so the, the counterpoint that I made was you could start to carve out portions of the building. Say you're doing like a office layout TI or something like that, or you're trying to optimize glazing percentages or floor area ratios. So you could kind of, in a sense, surgically uh, assign generative design to different portions of a project. And um, so those were some of my, my, my counterpoints. And then as, a, as another counterpoint of not having like uh, just tools off the shelf you could get, you do get like the likes of like HighParter.io, TestBit.io, uh, where people are starting to productize parts of generative design that you can actually just start to use, like if you're a developer, um, and start to, to use some of those tools. So those were uh, a few counterpoints um, that I had uh, to some of those comments uh, because I, I felt like they were they were valid. Of course, I have a bias on that, but well, I mean, I, so you guys obviously use it in your business. You have used it. So what value have you gotten out of it? I mean, you did post some examples in your in your rebuttal post, and I and I think right before we jump into that, I think what's really cool to see is the way that you approached this. It was. Like you were going to tell another side to the story based on your personal experience and what you know. And I think this took me back to the early days of blogging, right, where there used to be trackbacks and linkbacks. And instead of responding just in the comments on somebody's site, you would respond on your own site and then provide a link back to that original post. And that is very old school blogging. And what I love about it is that you have put your position or at least a response to another position out there on your site because you authored it. And I and I like that because I think it's a little more considered that way than just a response and a comment, right? Because typically in a response or in a comment section to another post, you're going to be super brief. You're not going to get to elaborate. You probably can't include examples with imagery or video or whatever. And so this kind of gives you the ability to do all that. So what examples did you guys or did you put into your post to help kind of fortify your point of view? Yeah, so there there were a few examples that we had on our own. So to, to your point, I didn't want to just um, say like respond with a narrative. You know, I wanted to try to have some meat to examples of at least my perception of why generative design is not doomed to fail, and some examples of of where I personally felt like it was successful. Some of those examples included like an iterative master planning project that we did for a, com- a client over in Dubai um, using the generative design Galapagos, the, the uh, evolutionary problem solver algorithm for Grasshopper. And so we used Galapagos for that project. Before Refinery was a thing, we built out our own generative design uh, parallel graph chart for uh, Mortensen Construction doing an opt- optimization for solar design. And we executed that because there wasn't really anything productized at the time. Like there was no Project Fractal, Refinery. And a lot of those were, if they did exist, they were more like lab, like beta under the Autodesk umbrella. Uh-huh. And so for that, those ones, we wanted to try to just build out our own. So that way it was a little more concrete. The client could like use it, run with it, you know, versus being dependent on that if that product went away in six months. So yeah, we did a solar a solar design optimization. We did an uh, iterative planning tool for TVS design in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, that was a generative design tool directly within Revit, um, a little add-in, little widget, um, very alpha, but you'd be able to generatively design one, two, and three-bedroom uh, hotel rooms and apartments for existing floor plate project. Um, so those are like three examples uh, that we've done or at least executed in-house. You know, So that's why I felt like, you know, 
you can execute generative design on projects and it be a success. Yeah, definitely. I I, I agree. I, I, one of the words you keep using is optimizing. And that to me is where that truly is generative design. And instead of blank piece of paper, you know, come up with a design from scratch kind of a thing. And I think like there's a big difference there. And, and, and it again comes back to words and, and you hear people say it all the time. Like we want to maximize daylight. We want to maximize views. We want to like whatever the things are. And, and that's actually not necessarily the case. Like generative design is based on, and hopefully it learns from this algorithm that you have designed based on constraints and inputs in the beginning. And so like you want to optimize for daylighting. Like you don't want a classroom with maximized daylight because then just go outside, right? Like what <laughs> or or you know whatever the case may be, load the ceiling with skylights. What but that's not necessarily the right learning environment. And so you're optimizing to hit some goal and that's like the whole idea behind a solver like Galapagos, right? Is like you're trying to optimize the fitness toward a goal. And and so having those goals and knowing what they are should sharpen the pencil, sharpen the the solution the further along the timeline it goes, right? And so you really are optimizing at that point, not optioneering. Optioneering I think is what a lot of people and maybe even Daniel is saying in his thing where it's his article which is like just spitting out a thousand iterations isn't necessarily helpful for anybody, right? Yep. So, so those are a lot. Those are very different things, very different words, but very specific in how they should be used. A hundred percent. Yeah. So his his point was, and and I quote: "I think uh, ten thousand uh, shitty options are not anywhere good for one thoughtful option." Yeah. And I agree with that statement, unless to your point, Evan, you use data or algorithms to help inform your options. So to that point, like if you're and I just to, to break it down in, in layman's term, you're doing stuff with data right. where before I feel like the early days of BIM, it's like, cool, like we model a, a hospital or an apartment and then you create your door schedule and your sheet index and call it a day. Now where we're at, we're kind of in this like BIM 2.0 of doing stuff with data, data driven design. Yeah. And so now if you have data and metrics, you can start to measure that information can start informing design, optimizing design, et cetera, to your point. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that that's a really succinct way to put it. And, and when you do say there's a difference between data-driven design and just the outcomes that you see that are all in thumbnails on a sheet, and then you start having to pick at one. Where, where optioneering and where generative design does get interesting is when it proposes something, may not work, but it might clue you into a path to follow, right? So you might get interested in something because of it coming up with, based on all the constraints that you designed and all the rules that you designed, it might come up with something you never thought of. And that's where things could get interesting. It's just like, you just can't guarantee that that's going to happen though. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. And I think of it kind of similar to like painting, right? Like if you, if you're painting, you, you make a mistake. Sometimes that information becomes informed, you know, as part of the painting or, or part of the design process even too. Um, so it can kind of help marry, you know, the, the, the design, I don't know, the, the, the design neurons in your brain to help inform them and, and, and work cohesively in that sense, in my opinion. Yeah, like spark some creativity in some way that you weren't expecting, right? Because then yes. it, that's what they call a happy accident, right? It's like, exactly. I didn't mean for that to happen, but I'm glad it did, right? That, exactly. that, that does happen. That is part of the creative process. 100%. Yeah, yep, for sure. sure. 
So, so how else are you guys using this kind of stuff in the work that you're doing? I saw you guys had something on your site about um, using it in healthcare. So how, like, what's the brief? How are you guys using that? What, what's interesting about that? And why would you choose to go that direction? I kind of say that we're, we're in a sense right now where we were in 08 or 09 with the adoption of them. I think we're right on the cusp of kind of generative design and data-driven design becoming more and more mainstream. Hmm. Um, you start getting bigger firms starting to implement it. Regarding the healthcare project and, and, and what we're doing on that side, uh, one of our core values at Evolve Lab is to leave the, the, leave the world better than when we came into it. And so that's part of our partnership with um, Atlas Group London, uh, David Maha Harper over there. We're, we're, we're teaming up with them and trying to get affordable healthcare to very remote parts of the world. And we're trying to leverage software development, generative design solutions to do that. And that plays a part in many, many different ways. But we're teaming up with them on that project, including, you know, uh, mechanical, electrical, plumbing, architecture, equipment, planning, healthcare, software, procurement, AR. There's, we're really throwing a lot of different technologies all together. It's, it's going to be a very large, long uh, pro- project, but we think it's going to be really, really worth it. And we're very, very excited about it. So, um, yeah, that's that's the one that we're teaming up with them on. That sounds awesome. So is it, I mean, I could imagine there's so many things to solve for there. How do you prioritize <laughs> what you're solving for? Because it's like, it's a design problem. It's a logistics problem. It's a fabrication problem. It's all that stuff, right? Like there's tons and tons of layers to that. Totally. Um, so one of the things that we've started to implement is agile development in our software development process. And as part of that, we assign story points, value points from a software development standpoint to prioritize what is most important or a feature uh, for the software development side. And so that helps us kind of frame a, a prioritization from the software development side. But I think your question in context is more on maybe like a design side, like how do you prioritize ductwork or architectural planning, right? Um, Zach Cron gives us a really good example of like a donut opposing objectives or opposing optimization, right? Let's say that you have a, a donut and your goal is to have the, the largest volume of void within that donut, but you also want the maximum amount of glazing and sprinkles. And, and these two things can start to be kind of counter opposing goals and objectives. And the same can hold true like when you're designing a hospital or project is that some things might sacrifice. Say like you you maximize daylighting, but now you've, you've now overrun nurse travel distances, right? Mm-hmm. And so like you have to start associating uh, a prioritization of those things. And there will be counter prioritizations, but generative design helps you to analyze those things faster. And so using like parallel graph charts and scatter plots, you can kind of start to see where if you're looking at multiple, you know, hundreds of different uh, hospital layouts, you could start to say, okay, well, these top 12 are most optimal for nurse travel distances, but we have to sacrifice maybe on the equipment planning side or uh, otherwise for daylighting, those kind of things. So it's like a yeah. typical design <laughs> design dilemma yeah. that everybody goes through, which is like, it's a series of, I, I don't want to just say compromises, but you know what I mean, right? It's one of those things where it's like, well, you, you only have this much money to spend. Where are you going to spend it? How are you going to spend it? What's the most important thing to spend it on? But yep. with what you guys are talking about, and I'm not quite sure about like site, but are you guys locked to site or are you looking at these things in like on a blank sheet? So you're yes. not you're not like really designing within a context. You might have an orientation, but you maybe don't necessarily have a site context. 
Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. Um, I this the site will be changing regarding. So we we do have we are considering site building footprints, and then we're even also considering um, distances for like infrastructure, like. How do you generatively design roadways to get there to these kind of remote areas and yeah. and other things? So um, we are absolutely considering site, and I think there's going to be opportunities probably in kind of dense, uh, you know, if you think of places maybe like India or other countries where you have very dense population and then you have more remote areas. So I think we're going to have to account for some of those. The, the answer is I think both. I, I don't think it's always going to be uh, the luxury of just a, a green site. I think we're also going to have to do some test fitting um, within the site and the constraints that are given us. Yeah. So you're basically, you know, you're developing a tool, right, to enable the architect to give them the ability to adapt to their, like whatever system they come up with to a site. Right? Does that sound about right? So what's it like building tools for other architects? Because that's yeah. mainly what Evolve Lab is doing. And there's a handful of other like consultant-type firms like Evolve Lab out there who are doing this similar thing. And I personally get a lot of gratification out of building tools. And I wanted to kind of get your point of view on that. Yeah, there, there's no better feeling. Frankly, you, in a sense, get to create something that's never existed before. And so the opportunity to, in a sense, speak something into existence or code something into existence is very, 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 very exciting and very, very rewarding. There are challenges and frustrations, you know, like when you get bugs and trying to meet uh, requirements, et cetera, but it is extremely fulfilling. Um, and then the other cool part, I think too, is partnering with people, like especially like, I mean, we've worked in and talked together in the past, um, being able to to work and, and, and team up with people that you're really excited about working with. Mm-hmm. That is actually something that I didn't really expect when starting Evolve Lab was the opportunity, like the friendships and the collaboration that occurs with clients, how that's created is very, very exciting. Yeah, that's super cool. I mean, it's one of those, it's just like a a thing that happens along the way, but you guys, I'm sure, get inspired by the people you're doing work for as much as you're inspiring them with the tools that you're building for them. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. that's really cool. So as far as that kind of stuff goes, and, and, you know, that's your day job, and you guys are, you're offering tools, you're creating resources, you're doing training, you're doing support. What else is going on in your life? Because one of the things that I was interested in was you basically took how many months? Two or three months? Five months. Five months. Wow. <laughs> and, and, and you you went overseas. and And so, like... This whole idea of working in architecture or AEC is is that there's not a lot of work life balance or work life integration, you know, however you whatever you want to call it. But so I just wanted to hear from you, like, uh, what was that like? How does that play into work life balance? Why did you do it? What was important about it? And and what lessons did you learn? I'm because I think that's one of the interesting things about going and doing something like that is you probably learn more than you thought you were going to. A hundred percent. Yeah. I would preface, I am the absolute worst person to give advice on work-life balance. Like (laughs) I have, I have zero boundaries when it comes to that. I I work later than I should be. I get up, I'm, I'm still answering teams messages and emails and stuff, you know, at 11 o'clock at night. Like I'm, I'm pretty horrible when it comes to work-life balance. Uh, before we move on then. Okay. Before we go on to that next part. And that's fine, right? Because that's you. And and so one of the things that's funny about the whole like 
you know, everyone's out there looking for advice and they're looking for a point of view when it comes to this kind of stuff is that you're hearing some what works for somebody else that is not necessarily going to work for you. In most cases, it's not going to work for you. So that's you. And like you, you own that, right? Yeah, like 100%. That's totally yeah. who you are. Yeah. And I think the, the, the irony of all of it is that I think entrepreneurship and, and business ownership is so romanticized in our culture of like, you know, work your own hours, set your own schedule. And it's like, <laughs> oh, do you mean nights and weekends, like working on your website or running payroll? Like, right. it, you know, like, it, and I do delegate some of that stuff, a lot of it, but it still consumes time and energy. Yeah. And so it, it is very challenging because, you know, for me, it's it's not just me. If I let me down, it's, it's me letting clients down or my team down. And so there's a lot of pressure and energy where I don't want to let people down. And I want to try to be that support, you know, for them to make sure that I'm setting them up for success. Um, so, yeah, that, that's where a lot of, I don't know, my motivation comes from. But, yeah, it, it's taxing on me personally. I, I, I can struggle with that a little bit and a little bit of burnout. So I bet. I mean, I, I think that's probably the thing that I've definitely noticed. And I know a lot of other people have in the work from home situation is not being able to turn off because there's no actual transition now between work and home. It's all happens and happening in the same place. Like I'm sitting in my master bedroom right now, you know, and so that's very difficult when you roll over in bed and you're looking at your office, right? Like, like there is no boundary there. And I could imagine that that's, that's really hard as a business owner because so many other people depend on you. Um, and you know, you know, a lot of people just don't understand that, right? It's already hard in work from home to separate those two. It's got to be even worse, I would imagine, when you're running your own thing and so many people depend on you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I would say like some practical things that I've tried to do in my own life just to balance. Like I have uh, an Apple smartwatch and I first had it set up to notify me every time my, my phone is. <laughs> and it's become one of these things where I'm talking to my wife, you know, my, my watch is ringing and, and I'm looking <laughs> at it to see notifications. And so. Uh, practically speaking, like I've turned off notifications on my, my watch. Yeah. Um, I'm actually doing a, a fast on of social media this, this month where I'm just fasting all social media. Cause I'm trying to not let that be a distraction. Nice. Um, I did go for a mountain bike ride last night, so nice. I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get better about these things. That's awesome. So, yeah. I, I've been trying to get, I took a couple of days off at the beginning of the week too. And I took one of my boys up and we did a well, I didn't think it was going to be this big, but it ended up being over 19 miles of a mountain bike ride. And uh, we were dead at the end of that. <laughs> but it was so nice to only be worried about mountain biking. That's all. That was the only thing going on at that time. You know, for those four and a half hours that we were gone, it was just like, that was it. There wasn't all this other stuff kind of knocking at the door, or knocking on your wrist or hitting your eardrums with these little t notifications and stuff all the time. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's so good. So good for your emotional state. Um, totally think it's worth it. Need to do that. So, yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, one of the things, another lesson coming out of this after we kind of learned that it is hard to transition between work and home life but when it's all happening in one location is to take care of yourself, to remember yep. to take care of yourself and to set that time aside and don't let anything else intrude on that for sure. Yeah, for sure. All right. So yeah. getting back to your, your overseas trip. So, so you decided to go away for five months. How did that work? Yeah. So, um, I had an interim, uh, chief operating officer that managed, uh, Evolve Lab while I was out. Um, and I was still very much tethered though. I mean, with, it's absolutely incredible being able to go overseas. The advent of the internet, you know, makes this possible. I could yeah. still, 
check on payroll and I could still even attend client meetings if I needed to. So I was still very, very, very much, you know, plugged in and working. It wasn't like it, it was a, a five month sabbatical or anything like that. But what we did, we went over there and we built um, a water tank for a village in Indonesia, uh, Bali, Indonesia. And so we also helped out with some of the Aboriginal community there. Uh, in Australia, it's maybe similar to like Native Americans. In America, they have Aboriginal communities in Australia. Mm-hmm. And so we helped out with some of those communities and, and providing food and other things like that. And then um, Evolve Lab and then our sister company, On Point Scanning, supported or sponsored a water tank up there. And so I was able to take the wife and, and the kids and everybody, and we get to be a part of the experience. So it's cool being able to donate money and, and be able to, like, see pictures of it. But it's it's whole another thing when you're standing next yeah. to village people pouring concrete. I mean, these people are so resourceful, too. It's, it's incredible. When I told some people about it, they're like, cool, like, what what program did you model the water tank in? And it's like, <laughs> I mean, these guys are, like, in the middle of the, the village, like, cutting down bamboo sticks, you know, like, for right. form work for the concrete. I mean, there's no computers in, in these villages. Yeah. And so it was a very uh, kind of archaic construction process, but it was cool, cool to be a part, a part of it. So, that's, so why that's did you guys we decide to go there? We felt like it. We, we partnered uh, with a group called Youth with a Mission, and we uh, teamed up with the group. There was a, a team of us that went over there, um, and it was just something that we felt like we were supposed to do. Never traveled internationally in my entire life. It's the oh, first wow. time I've ever gone overseas. You know, Australia is kind of similar to America, you know, uh, kind of like a democracy kind of country and Western kind of culture. Uh, Indonesia was totally different, which was totally different experience. But it was still cool. Like you get an appreciation for how people live over there. But we really just wanted to give back. As, as I mentioned, it's like our, one of our core values at Evolve Lab is, is to leave the world better than we came into it. And it can't be just like a catch line or tag tag phrase or something like that it has to be something that I felt like I had to put some energy and time into to make it real for, for me and make it real for the rest of us. So, yeah. So setting that example for your, your team has got to be huge, big, important thing. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. And like I encourage our whole team, like our, our team volunteers and does other things, you know, that's important to them and, and in their own right. And, it, and that means different things to different people, buying someone coffee sure. or building some cool app or widget that sits on top of Revit that can mean a lot of different things and, and is open to interpretation, but that's, that's how we executed it myself personally. So, so a minute ago you talked about like turning off all the the notifications and stuff on your phone. And so tell us like one of the things I've been asking people as we're doing these recordings is to share kind of a personal hack, something that you do to help yourself perform better. And I can imagine like as the leader of your company, it kind of comes down to that. A lot of times it's like, what, what else are you willing to do, right? Because that, as, as to me, leadership is is how do you serve other people? Not necessarily like you're not the p- person out front pointing in the direction you're going to go, but you're also pulling the team along with you or you're pushing them along from the back, right? <laughs> 100%. So, so what do you do to keep yourself in the right mindset, the right place mentally, physically? Like, I don't know, share whatever you want, but it, I, I'm always interested in what people are doing to kind of keep themselves sharp or to give themselves an edge or anything like that? Yeah, for sure. I would say the most important thing I do is read. Like I, I'm, I was never a reader before I started Evolve Lab, but since starting it, I was like, man, I really got to bone up on my business skills and my business knowledge and marketing and like how all these different metrics, like I, I didn't go to school to get my MBA. Like I don't, it, like I'm getting my MBA right now, like through hard knock of like trying experience. to run a company. Yeah. Yeah. It's through experience. So, um, like I've been reading just a ton, you know, Tim Ferriss, Four Hour Work Week, Disrupt You by Jay Samet, 
Um, I just, I read a ton of books. And so like, it's kind of sad, even like Sundays, I usually try to unplug from all work stuff, but I'm still just reading a ton on Sundays. Um, so that's one thing that I, I do avidly is just to continually to try to um, grow in my knowledge and just gain information and insight. One of the things they say is you're the average of the five, five people you spend the most time with. And so kind of my thought is if I can surround myself with books and learn from other people, I can maybe hopefully, you know, grow in, in some of that. Um, so that's that's one thing I do. I also do have, uh, some kickboxing here in my office. I have a uh, a bag that I, I hit and I do some kind of kickboxing and, and working out and meditating as well. Uh, some of those things help help me as well. So. That's awesome. I, I've actually heard, you know, the, that that idea about you are the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. It, I've actually recently heard that you're actually the average of the five people that those five people spend their time with. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's getting a little meta there, but um, I, it kind of it makes sense, right? Because because they're not islands, right? There, it's a network, and so it's it is this kind of network effect, and so something to start looking at at least what I took away from that was something to start looking at was look at your five and look at, try to start looking outside into that next circle and see who those people are. Because then like you're really getting a more clear picture of where all their influencers are coming from that are also trickling down to you. Not, not that that's easy to do, but I thought that was a really interesting kind of way to look at it. A hundred percent. That, that makes so much sense. And I think like you have to be so intentional about that. Um, we actually started, I don't know if people have heard of a, a mastermind group, but it's it's the yeah. idea of like collection of people uh, in this neural network of knowledge. And so uh, myself and two others started one in Denver uh, called the AEC Mastermind Group. And it's it's a group of other business owners that, you know, we have an interior designer, we have a window and door uh, company, uh, we have an electrical designer. And so the idea was, is like, okay, can we uh, grab different people from different sectors of the AEC industry and cross-pollinate ideas and how you run your business and meditation, like what are you doing to decompress and all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, I I think you have to be very intentional about like who you surround yourself with and even those people who they surround themselves with. I hadn't heard that before, so that's interesting. So do you guys, you guys, I don't know if you're meeting in person, but how do you guys actually structure that so that you do make time to make that mastermind group happen? We meet once a month. Um, we were meeting in person before the whole COVID thing. Yeah. Um, now we're doing Zoom meetings, but I think next meeting we're actually meeting in person. Um, but we meet once a month at someone's office and we meet for two hours. We share responsibility of, of facilitating that meeting and a topic that you want to talk about. Um, and so we just we, we share that uh, each each person gets to, to lead on a topic of their choice. So, Very cool. yeah, That's and it's awesome. more roundtable than presentation. I always get so much more out of like conversations versus like, you know, being presented to. So it's also, it's more of a round table kind of conversation. That's totally the idea of what's going on here too. I mean, we talked a little bit about this before we, we actually officially started recording, but like, I feel like there's so much more nuance and interesting little tidbits of things that happen when it's conversation and when it's not super structured and it's not you know, usually presentation is one direction. Maybe there's some Q&A at the end. Um, but you rarely see presenters stand up at the beginning and say, interrupt any time. This is a conversation. Like, that doesn't happen very often. So if you just structure it so that it's a conversation from the start, I feel like there people can get more out of it. It's, you know, ah. if, if you're part of that group 
or in this case, if you're not one of us on this recording right now, but listening in and getting something out of it, I feel like there's more opportunity for that when the conversation has the freedom to go different directions. Yeah. 100%. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So do you, so you talked a little bit about meditation. It's, it's actually a theme that's come up before on the show. Uh, what, what do you, what do you do for that? How do you structure that? How's that work for you? Yeah. So, um, again, this is an area that I'm very, very poor at. Um, I can get so distracted. Like if, so I do a lot of uh, guided meditation, um, where someone, uh, helps bring focus to different parts of your body or different ideas. Um, and I usually try to pick certain themes. Like if I'm trying to work on like self-esteem or, helping with morning habits or whatever else. Um, and so I have just an app on my phone that I use uh, to meditate and I just follow the different, it's called a insight timer is the name of the app. Okay. And uh, so shout out to those guys, but it's, it's really, really good. And they have different people that, you know, have different topics that they go through. And I wish it was a little, I wish I could say I was a little more structured with it, but I just kind of pick whichever one sounds good at the yeah. time. Yeah. Um, and I usually do it after I work out. So after a day of, of working out or excuse me, after a day of in the office, um, I'll work out. And then, uh, after the workout is like a cool down, I'll, I'll do like a meditation type exercise. So I'm, I'm the opposite. I do it in the morning. I, I've, we have a sauna in the house we bought a few years ago. And so I try to do that three or four days a week. And as I, I actually go into the sauna for about 30 minutes and the first 10 minutes is my meditation. And so I feel like I, I, I also use a guided meditation app. I use the one by Sam Harris. Uh, I think it's called Waking Up. Um, yeah, that yeah, one too. It's fantastic. Uh, I, I love it. And I feel like that first 10 minutes in there, because it's a it's a quiet space, like I, I, one of the goals of meditation is to be able to do it anywhere. And so I would totally struggle with that. Like I kind of need my space to be very regularized and and I need it to be very routine, but the goal is like you should be able to sit in a noisy spot and tons of people around and you should still be able to do it. I'm striving to get there. But uh, I feel like that's a it's a great way for me to start my day. And it would it's actually very hard for me to do it at night because that's when I want to fall asleep. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. And they say I've always heard that it's it's the ideal time to do it is in the morning. So I think you're you're right on 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 that side. Well, whatever works, right? Like that, yeah. I think that's the theme of this uh, this episode is whatever works for you. <laughs> sure, <laughs> it's uh, it that's that's kind of what everybody's trying to do. Everybody's trying to figure things out, and so you've got to figure out what works best for you. And so I would never tell somebody you've got to do it in the morning. It's just it's just what works for me. So I'm I'm happy to hear all kinds of other ideas that happen out there because. Because and what's cool is like we're both sharing those and maybe somebody else will try it. And if anybody wants, I'll send them an invite because there's like a month for free on Sam Harris's app and I can just send you an invite for it and you'll get a month for free. But it's a fantastic program to follow. And I really do feel like that guided part is really important for people who have never meditated before because it does kind of help recenter you over and over again. Because man, the mind goes crazy, right? It just wanders like crazy. And that's how you know you need to meditate more. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. I, I totally agree. And the brain is designed, it's a protection mechanism. It's designed to protect you. And then, so if you're thinking like it's, it's trying to problem solve and fix all you. So like when you lay down at night, your, your mind's racing, all these things you got to do and fix and work on. Um, the meditation is so, so important to just kind of clear your thoughts. And the other thing I think is really important about meditation, but just in general, uh, is to be present, you know, like yeah. you can be with your kids or, uh, you know, somewhere else and not be present. 
And that's one of the nice things about meditation and something that I'm working on is just trying to be present, like not worrying about my email inbox or the website or other stuff, but to just be present and enjoy the moment. So I feel like that's what, um, yeah, totally agree. That's what meditation, one of the main purposes of it is. And that's also why I like rock climbing and I like technical mountain bike riding because you have to be right there right then. Because if yep. you're not, you're going to get hurt. <laughs> 100%. So it helps focus you to be there now. And that to me is like, like if you just go for a jog, like, oh man, that's, that's really good thinking time, but it's not meditative in any way, right? Because your mind is racing. Or if you just go for a leisurely mountain bike ride, hopefully your all your receptors are firing and taking in that nature and, and getting all that good, you know, the good vitamin D and the, the imagery and all that good stuff and the clean air. But your mind still has the opportunity to wander. That's like you start throwing some rocks and some sticks and some jumps and stuff in the way, and all of a sudden you better be there, man, or else you're gonna you're gonna be getting hurt. So totally true. It's totally a true. it's a very much a being there in the moment kind of a thing. So because that is harder and harder these days. I think it's harder and harder to separate the chatter from the present. Oh, totally. Yeah, it's it's crazy with like all the automation and all the things that are supposed to save us time. But now, like, you get notifications and, like, we're so connected now, you know, right. with our devices. And, yeah, you can get very distracted very easy. It's hard to focus. Totally. So you mentioned a couple of books that you're reading for our work week and Disrupt You. I think you actually recommended that book to me, too, as well in the past, maybe at the, maybe when we were at AU. Mm-hmm. So who who are you reading or what are you listening to right now? Yeah, so I'm actually am reading through the book Disrupt You again. I'm I'm reading. I was reading a book on passive income. It was kind of cool about you know software and um, other ways for passive income. I was reading something on that, um, but I've actually switched back to Disrupt You, and I'm I'm rereading that one again right now. I'm just getting so much insight from it. If you have not read it, you have to read it. It's it's so so good. It, one of the things that I really appreciate about the book is it's not just like giving you knowledge, but the guy does such a good job of like storytelling and telling his like own experiences. And I would also encourage people that are listening that you also don't necessarily need to have like your own company uh, to be a disruptor. Like the guy in the book talks about entrepreneurship. Yeah. And I don't remember if we ever talked about this, Evan, at, at AU or otherwise, but the idea of entrepreneurship is actually one of the best places to be because then you get all the money financial backing from like a big organization or a big company, mm-hmm. but then you get the, and you can hire like the absolute best candidates, you know, yeah. with the highest salaries. And then you can really make some really momentous impact. Yeah. And so there's huge opportunities for like entrepreneurs that can disrupt within, disrupt the industry, disrupt their own firm, which is something uh, that the book talks about. And that's the first time I've actually ever heard that term. Uh, was w- within the book the idea of entrepreneurship. That's cool. Yeah, I think, yeah, it kind of kind of goes with along with the idea of I think what, what they call it is three hundred and sixty degree leadership. Like you don't have to be at the top and lead downward. You could be anywhere and you could lead upward. You could lead down. You could lead sideways. You can lead from wherever you are, and it seems very connected to that idea of entrepreneurship, right? Like you have this security you've got this backing you've got some safety there to try things and i i kind of feel like that's what we're doing with digital practice at hmc it's very much like we're building a team operating like a startup inside of a larger company doing some huge shifts for hmc and giving people the opportunity to come do their passionate work there like we're actually becoming the landing zone for some amazing talent 
And that to me is one of the most gratifying things about leading that group is giving those opportunities and then watching what they do with it because totally. like, they've never had that opportunity to do, do it how they would do it before. So it, that's been huge for the, for our, our team. I love it. I, I really appreciate that. And I know like you and I've had conversations before and that's something that really resonates whenever I've seen you with your team. Uh, the one word I think of is empowerment. Like, you very much, at least in, in my observation, empower your team at HMC. And I've always seen like there's been times when you've been on calls, but then other times you're like, man, I trust you guys. Like just run with it, execute right. it. And I've always really appreciated that about you is I feel like you do a really good job of empowering your team, giving them the tools and processes that they need to success. But then you also do a really good job, I feel, of kind of getting out of the way a bit and going, hey, man, take take the lead on this and crush this out. So I always appreciate that about you. I actually learned that from when I was working at Apple. I was only there for a couple of years and I had I had never been in a company like that where I had a real mentor at that point who said, "You can do whatever you want to do here, man. It doesn't matter. Like you've got huge potential. You tell me what red tape I can remove and to get it out of your way so that you can do that." And that was the first time my eyes were ever open to the idea of what I would, and he was my manager, but I would call that leadership. Like that to me is the difference between leadership and management. Often man, like these are two skills. They're both valuable skills, but they are very different from each other. And a lot of people confuse leadership and management, but leadership really is like, how do I remove roadblocks so that you can go where you want to go? And then I want to watch that happen. Where management is very much like, here are the steps that you are now going to do to get from here to there. And like I said, they're, they are mutually beneficial, but they're both also very necessary to be separate things. 100%. I totally agree. Yeah. yeah. I, I recall, like, I worked at a, a really large architecture firm, and I remember uh, I was in one department, and I had, like, the worst boss in the world. Like, I had crazy anxiety anytime working in, in that role or in that department just a very negative, toxic environment. And then I switched to another department and I had like the best boss in the world. And he had a very similar mentality to, to your boss or, or, or um, leader at, at Apple is he's like, what do you want to do? What do you want to work on? What do you like? And I remember just the flip that happens. People become so much more efficient and successful and the morale is so good and people are more efficient when they're working on what they like to do and they're, they're in a very... It. Yeah, you know, when they own it and they have a good ecosystem or an environment to execute it. Yeah. And so and and they get to own it, you know, because it's it's something that you're like, what do you like to do? Cool, you're good at that. Run with it, execute it. And then they're more efficient. It's, it's a mutually beneficial thing. It's beneficial for the company because you're getting tasks done quicker, but it's also beneficial for the team member because they're doing something they like. And there's also a, a multiplier that happens as well where people become more efficient when they're doing something that they like. Yeah, totally. If you look forward to going to work, you're going to kill it, right? <laughs> if you yeah, exactly. if you want to be there and you, you are like, you can't wait to do the thing that you're going to do, you're going to do it really well. And you're going to do it on time and you're going to do it under budget. And like there's just more in your favor working there, whereas if you're going to work and it's a slog, it's like, when is this going to be over? This is painful. I have anxiety. I'm depressed. Morale is low. You can see how that environment makes a huge difference in somebody's outlook and therefore their performance. Totally. Yeah. Yep. hundred percent. Totally agree. 
Cool, man. Well, I, I love having a conversation with you. You're you're so fun to talk to. And so I really appreciate you hanging out with us today. Uh, last thing, I would just love it if you could tell everybody here where they can find out more about you and where can they follow along with what you're doing. Yeah, I appreciate it. So EvolveLab.io um, is where you can find us. Just launched a bunch of free e-learning modules around Rhino Inside and Dynamo. So if anyone's looking to kind of learn more on the computational front, um, we're launching that e-learning side. And it's all kind of computational and parametrically focused. Um, we feel like that's where people need the most amount of resources at this time, like with the next wave of computational design, generative design, et cetera. Um, so if you want to check that out, I believe it's evolvelab.io forward slash e-learning. There's some cool free resources there. And then we have the blog as well. Tons of Dynamo scripts. We're always publishing Way Faster Wednesdays, um, or we're trying to get better about it. Um, so LinkedIn um, can check that out as well. So. You guys have a cool YouTube channel too. Like you guys post your live streams on there and you got a lot of good yep. videos on there. Yep. We have, we have the YouTube live streams. Um, we're still trying to dial those in as uh, we're using different technologies and trying to get that dialed in still yet. But yeah, we're using YouTube, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, really any of the social media places you can find us. All the socials. Uh, all the socials. So yeah, trying to, trying to provide free, but good content, you know, for the industry help move it forward. So. Well, thank you so much for doing that. I think that's a, a great attitude to have and a great outlook. I mean, we're trying to do the same thing is raise everybody up because like for me to win, you don't have to lose. Like we can all win. There's plenty of work for everybody. So let's all help make the profession better. And that's what I, that's really like, if I were to pick a theme so far on this podcast, it's finding people who are interested in doing that. So appreciate you very much. And it was great talking to you today. Yeah. Likewise, Evan, thanks for having me. I really do appreciate it. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E Troxel. Talk to you soon.